Psalm 89 verse 7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around Him. We see many forms of worship in uh, the world today. And the focus of this sermon is not to say that some of those worships are wrong and some of the worships are right and some are better than others. The point is, in worship, God is to be magnified. God is to be lifted up and God is to be revered by all those that are around. There's different singing styles. We have old songs. We have new songs. Old is good. New is good. What is important is that God is praised when we worship Him. And that is the focus of our worship. But sometimes it can be hard to see what is true worship and what is not true worship. The title today is called Counterfeit Worship. Now we know that there's counterfeit money out there. And me, I can't, I can't tell the difference between counterfeit money and real money. I, I have no clue. You could dupe me with it. The government knows, though, because they have set aside a certain template to make that money on a certain type of paper to make sure that it is genuine. It has been dictated by the government, whatever government that may be, it has been dictated what that proper, useful currency is. We don't get to just pick and choose how we would like to change it up. I don't like the picture that's on it. I don't like the size of that dollar bill, so I'm going to change it up. The government has mandated what true worship or what true uh, currency is. God has dictated to us, has mandated to us what true worship is. And if our hearts are not in tune with God, if our hearts are not seeking after God, if our hearts are not focused on the glory and the reverence of God in worship, then sometimes we too are duped into what is true worship and what is counterfeit worship. There's an example in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now what is happening here is they are setting up the tabernacle. God has just given them this whole list of things that they need to be doing, and Moses is uh, sanctifying the priests and the temple. He is purifying them, and they are dedicating them to God. And what happens is they... Through God's direction to Moses, they lay the animals on the altar, this type of animal, this portion of this animal, and it's laying there on the altar. And then God, in His power, comes down with fire to consume the offerings on that altar. It was a holy fire from above. Man did not start that fire. That was from God to show that He accepted the sacrifice. Well, Aaron, the chief priest, had two sons, Nadab and Abihu who were also priests with Aaron. They were his two oldest sons, and they were priests with him, and they were to serve in the temple. Now, God had told them what to do. He had told them how to worship him, what to use to worship him. And we don't know the reason that Nadab and Abihu do what they're about to do. I don't know the real reason that they did this, but here's what I do know. They didn't worship God how he told them to. So what they did is they got their censers and they put some incense in it to burn, but then they got their own fire 
They got their own fire and put it in there and went to present their burning incense and their censers to God. Now, the people that are standing out here in the congregation are looking like, well, the priests are caring about their priestly duties. Fire has just come down. It terrified everyone. They fell on the, on the ground in great fear, as we all would have. And then they see the, the oldest sons of the chief priest coming with their censers to offer before God. On the surface, it looks good, right? Nothing wrong with it. So it appears. But when they approach God and His holiness... He shoots out fire and completely destroys them. He burns them up. Now that had to have been another second shock to the people that these priests who they were doing God's service, they thought, were consumed by this deadly fire. But it says, Moses tells Aaron, it, it, let's just read it. Adab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, put fire in it, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. It is not the fire that he told them to use, and that's what they had used. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses, now Moses has had some punishment from God already in his time. He says to Aaron, This is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Now, what did they do that wasn't so glorifying to God? They were simply going to worship Him, weren't they? They were offering incense, weren't they? Yes, they were, but they were doing it by their own means, through their own wisdom, through their own could be godliness. We don't know what they were thinking. Maybe they thought, I'm just going to get this fire over here. It's accessible. I don't want to get near God's fire that He just made. But God commanded them not to do this one. It was meaning He didn't tell them to do this. He had given specific instructions for what they were to do. And Aaron, knowing that God's holiness was prime above all things, held his tongue. His two oldest sons had just been destroyed before him and he held his peace Because he knew that the holiness of God was supersedes all other things. And it shows that God takes his worship of him seriously. And these two priests did not take serious enough their service before God. The strange fire, this word strange just means foreign or profane. We've heard the term foreign fire before in some conferences, in the Strange Fire conferences that um, John MacArthur does. But it means a stranger, a foreign fire. God had just lit the altar to establish, to sanctify, to consecrate this temple. And they took a different fire. And they took incense that He did not tell them to burn. Now there was incense they were supposed to burn, but they picked something different. Again, I don't know why. But in God's justice of His holiness, He completely consumed that. Now, God could have told Moses, hey, tell him not to do this again. That, that was a mess up. But God's holiness is preeminent above all things. And to show the people that He would be glorified in every way before the people, He consumed these two men. And Aaron held his tongue. They had brought something counterfeit to bring to God. They did not bring to God what He had given them to bring to Him. 
They did not give to God what He had told them to bring, and they brought something of their own making. Now, there's another instance where Moses had the people with him. They're grumbling as usual. And the Scripture says Moses was the meekest among men. You had to be to deal with that group of people for that many years. But even the meekest of men lost his cool a couple of times. And God didn't say, you know what, Moses, you've dealt with these people for 80 years. I'm going to let you have this one. We'll let it slide. No, God, even in the midst of Moses, a special prophet whom he spoke to as a friend, face-to-face as a friend with his presence, was not going to let Moses slide either on his glory in front of the people. They were thirsty. They had nothing to drink. They're complaining. And God told Moses, go and speak to the rock and say, must God bring forth water from this rock? So Moses goes and he takes his staff and he hits the rock and says, must we bring forth water? Now, I don't think it was so much the striking of the stone that God reprimands him for, but it is when Moses says, must we. He elevated himself before the presence of the people. Now, did God say, shame, Moses, don't do that again, tisk tisk. He says, no, Moses, these people that you have led for all of these years that I have promised will have this beautiful land, you will not enter. You did, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people. What Moses had done is he had lifted himself up and he had brought God down. In a fit of anger, in a fit of rage, whatever it was with Moses... He did not give God the due and proper worship that God, was, that God is owed before the people. And he was punished because of it. Now, did Moses have an evil heart? No, Moses was a godly man who messed up and he had to reap the consequences for that. Did uh, Nadab and Abihu have evil hearts? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that they did not worship God the way that he instructed them to. Now, how does this have to apply for us today? Because we're not going to go offer a sacrifice. We're not having to bring water out of a rock. What does this mean for us when it says counterfeit worship? How do we not bring strange fire or foreign fire before the Lord? Now, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is speaking to the church here, and he starts telling them of all this list of things that that men have wanted them to do. And he's saying, don't have respect for these holy days, for these ceremonies, for these eating of the meat or not eating of the meat or for this washing of of the hands. He says, paraphrasing uh, verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance. They look wise. They have an appearance of wisdom. But they're a self-imposed religion. They're a false humility. They're of no value to you against the indulgence of the flesh or in your worship of God. But on the surface, they sounded good. Oh, you you can't eat that because that will dishonor God. You must worship on this holy day. You must recognize this holy day. You must recognize this ritual. You must recognize this tradition because these things show our worship of God. And what Paul is telling them is these things do nothing for your spiritual walk. These are man-made man-made ways of worshiping. So it's called a will worship. It even says that in that verse, that it's a will worship. What does, that, does that mean that the people are actually worshiping themselves? No, but what it does mean is that they think their ideas of how to worship God need to be added to what God has told us in worshiping Him. 
It means that they're saying, I think I can worship God better if I do this. I think I may have enough spiritual wisdom that if I sprinkle this in there with it, it will bring me closer to God instead of going with what God has prescribed. Worship which one prescribes and devises for himself, contrary to the contents of nature of faith, which ought to be directed to Christ, equals arbitrary worship. It's useless. It's useless worship. God has given us now, in this New Testament age, ways to worship Him. He does not tell us to go and sacrifice the animals. He does not tell us to come bring incense before Him. There's two things that He has commanded for us as a church body to do. That's the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, we at our church wash feet, which is a good thing. It's a good example. It's not a mandate of Scripture that we do so. But the baptism of the saints and the Lord's Supper are commandments. Now, if we were to try to add to God's method of baptism, or if we were to try to add to God's method of the Lord's Supper, it's futile effort. We're wasting our time because God has given us a proper way to worship Him. He's also told us that we are to admonish one another as a church. We're to sing to one another. We're to pray for one another. We're to read the Scripture. We're to preach. We're to listen. We're to fellowship. This is how God has told us to worship as a church. Now, are any of those things, the, the greeting one another, the, all this whole one another series that we've just been through, the confessing to one another, the bearing one another's burdens, how in the world does that make us go and worship God? What is that doing to cause us to worship God? Isn't that just something I'm doing for you and, and you're doing for me? But what does God call us in Colossians? That we are a body fitly jointed together of which He is the head. We worship God by caring for His body. We worship God by loving His people. We worship God by following His ways of worship. Not the man's schemes, not man's ideas of what we should add to to make us better or take away because we don't think it's useful. But we are to worship God in a way that He has told us. Now there's a counterfeit holiness. And 1 Corinthians 13, I think, is probably one of the best examples that we can have of what a counterfeit holiness may be. Now remember when I was talking about currency at the beginning. I can't tell the difference between real currency and fake currency. I don't know what it is. So how can we tell the difference between what's true worship and not true worship? What if it looks right? Now, if we read through 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to see a lot of stuff that sounds right. It sounds good. And there's nothing really wrong with these. But can we worship in truth and in the power of the Spirit of God without one key feature, that special ingredient, The government has this special die that they use for the currency, a special paper that they use for the currency, a special template that they use for the currency. And God also has a special key to our worship and how we worship Him by the way that we treat one another. And it's called love. Without love, we have counterfeit worship. Is your forgiveness of any value, as we heard this morning, is your forgiveness worth anything? 
If it's to get them off your back, if it's so they'll stop bothering you, is it worth anything? Is it true forgiveness if it's not done with a heart of love? Was our worship counterfeit? Is it centered on ourselves, by ourselves, through ourselves, because of ourselves? Because we have a better idea, a new way of doing things? It may look good, it may sound good, but is it because of God? Is it for God? Is it by God? So in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul conveys the idea of a, a counterfeit eloquence, beautiful speech, a loveless exhibition of someone who can speak great things. Somebody that's just sitting to the side may listen and say, it's an angel talking. It's beautiful. Listen to the way that that person preaches. Listen to the way that that person prays. Isn't that just holy? Just listen. But is that person doing it to be heard, to be seen, or for their heart of love for God? Because love is missing in each one of these cases. Every one of these things that we're going to read here in verse all the way through verse 8, they're empty. They are useless. They are vain. And they're all good things if they're not with love. These sacrifices here, the sacrifices of the mouth that are being given in 1 Corinthians 13, are empty. They're useless. They are counterfeit without that special ingredients. Let's read through these. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. The tongues of men. I mean, I, I could speak in any language you pick. And I could speak it with great eloquence. But if it's not with love, it's useless. I could speak as the angels speak. I don't know what that sounds like, but it's probably pretty amazing. And even if I could speak like the angels and I don't have love, what does it call it? Sounding brass or tinkling cymbals. You might as well get pots and pans and clang them together because that's what you've got. It's just noise. Simply noise if it doesn't have love. And though I have the gift of prophecy, there's nothing wrong with prophecy, is there? There's prophets all through it, all through the scripture. And I understand all the mysteries and I have all knowledge. I want to talk to that guy, the one that knows all the mysteries, that's got all the knowledge. Who would not want to sit with them and listen to them speak? Especially if they can sound like an angel while they're doing it. They're just building up on it. And though I have all the faith, this is the most faithful person of God that I've ever seen. He's probably the smartest guy in the scripture that I've ever seen. And he talks so beautifully. I just want to sit at this guy's feet and listen. Oh, and can remove mountains on top of that. So not only is he the greatest speaker out there, speaking with the tongue of an angel, you know all things about scripture. You've got the biggest faith and you can move mountains with it. But I don't have love, then I'm a little less... I am nothing. It's again, it's just banging some pots and pans together. It's useless worship. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Now, who can argue with that? That's great. We're commanded in the scripture to feed the poor, the widowless, the orphans. 
We're supposed to have bowels of mercy for them. Those are great. We should do that. If I give everything that I have to feed the poor, we'll, we'll top that one. Or give my body to be burned. Now, how can you say anything against that? But I have not love. It profits me nothing. Charity, love, suffereth long. Charity is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Down to verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three. We need those. We need faith. You need to live with faith and you need to live with hope. But you have to have love with it. And the greatest of these is love. You would think that faith would be the biggest thing you should have there, right? If not faith, at least hope. But the most important thing for us as a Christian, is to show love. Why? Why is that so important? Why is that the biggest one? Because we were given the perfect example of love. A perfect example of submission to the will of God through the love of Jesus Christ that He has not for just His people, but for His Father's glory. Jesus loved God's glory above all things. Jesus worshipped God above all things. And God loves His name above all things. So when we come before God to worship Him, it doesn't matter how good we have been through that week. It doesn't matter what kind of life we have lived, how much we have given to the poor, how much great we have done. If we're not doing it in a spirit of love, is it really of God? Or is it something that we are doing to make ourselves simply feel better? It may be a good deed. It may be something that needed to be done. But are you doing it because you're worshiping God? Are you forgiving because you want to love? Or are you forgiving so that you can silence them? Are you feeding the poor so that you can feel better that you have fed the poor? Or are you doing it because you love the poor? Matthew Henry sums up this chapter the best, so I'm going to read what he says. He said, Could a man speak all the languages on earth, and that with the greatest propriety, elegance, and fluency? Could he talk like an angel, and yet be without charity? It would be all empty noise. Mere unharmonious and useless sound that would neither profit nor delight. 
It is not talking freely nor finely nor learnedly of the things of God that will save ourselves or profit others if we are destitute of holy love. It is the charitable heart, not the voluble tongue, that is acceptable with God. To me, that was very sombering when I read that. Because when you read through this list of things like prophecy is good, knowledge is good, feeding the poor is good, giving of myself is good, it made me really stop and think, how often am I doing the things that I do throughout the week because I have a love for others? I'll admit, it's not very often, honestly. It's usually for convenience sake for me. It's usually because it benefits me in some way. It's usually so I feel better about myself or I want some peace and quiet or I want this or I want that. But what it boils down to is most of the time my actions center around what is more convenient for me. They center around what makes me feel better. I was convicted this week, very convicted over this. Not that I'm going out and doing evil things, but it's that my heart is not really been focused on a love towards God's people. My heart has been focused on a love for Titus's comfort, a love for my peace and quiet, a love to make myself feel better. If I'm to worship God by the way that I live amongst His people, have I been worshiping Him with a counterfeit worship? Or have I been worshiping Him with true worship? Sadly, a lot of times it's counterfeit that I'm dishing out. It's like, counterfeit, counterfeit, here you go, here you go, here you go. Leave me alone. I did my good deeds for the day. Instead of out of a heart for love for God's people. So what does God accept then? What is acceptable to God? Acceptable sacrifice or acceptable worship is done through a faith in God. Abel, in Hebrews 11.4, why was Abel's... Uh, sacrifice accepted, but his brother's was not because Abel's was done through faith. Acceptable sacrifices through faith in God. Acceptable sacrifices done in obedience to God. 1 Samuel 15, Saul had conquered people and he was supposed to destroy everybody, women, children, animals, all of it. But he didn't. Samuel uh, is coming and... Um, Saul decides he's going to do things on his own. Tired of waiting for Samuel. Goes ahead and makes sacrifices himself, which he was not told to do. What? He's making a sacrifice. He's worshiping God, right? That's not what God, that's not how God told him to worship. He decided he was going to take things in his own hands by his own wisdom to show God how he can worship. Well, God takes the throne from him and the crown from him because of that. And Samuel tells him, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? God had commanded sacrifices to happen, burnt offerings to happen. That was how they went and made their petitions before the Lord. But now Samuel's saying, does he really delight in that the most over you obeying him? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed or to listen to God than the fat of all the rams. He's saying... When you take worship into your own hands and you do it with your own way and the way that you deem best, and we deviate from what God has told us is the true form of worship, which for us is a heart of love, is it really being accepted by God? 
Acceptable sacrifice is a broken and a contrite heart. Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Well, a broken and contrite heart usually doesn't look really pretty. Sometimes you're ugly crying when you have a broken and contrite heart. You're just weeping. God loves it. He loves that form of worship. Why? Why does God love that so much more than the giving and the the serving? Because we're lifting God way, way above ourselves. We're getting ourselves as low as we could possibly get and lifting God up. That is true worship. Acceptable sacrifice comes from a heart of meditation on God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, 14. What does God accept? He accepts our meditation on Him, our hearts for Him. Acceptable sacrifice is the fruit of lips giving continual praise. Hebrews 13, 15 tells us. It says, By Him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. Why is that acceptable? Because it's to His name. It's lifting God up and it's bringing man back where we belong, which is low. Acceptable sacrifice comes with fear, reverence, and awe of who God is. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Wherefore, we receiving, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. God accepts our worship when we come before Him with fear, awe, a reverence, a holy reverence of who He is. We are not to come and worship Him flippantly. This isn't a social club. We get to have fun at church. I love coming to church. I love to hear us in the fellowship hall talking and laughing and being together. But that's not why we're here. It's a benefit of coming here. It's a joy that God gives us in this family. But we are to come with a reverent awe of who God is. Not coming in fake because God can see the counterfeit. I might not be able to, but God can. We are to come with a trembling, reverent fear of Him because He is a consuming fire. He's a just God. He shows wrath upon upon the wicked. But He shows mercy through the blood of Jesus to His people. And that should draw us to worship Him. Acceptable sacrifice shows us more of Him and less of us. I love the saying of John the Baptist, He must increase and I must decrease. That is worship. More of Jesus and less of me. John had a following. They even wondered if he was the Messiah or some other great special prophet. John wanted less of himself and more of Jesus. That is worship. That's not lifting yourself up, not bringing yourself what you can do, your own good. He was simply worshiping Jesus. Acceptable sacrifices when we come by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We're coming only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not by our own good, not by my own deeds, not the the great things that I have done, not my feeding of the poor, none of it. It's simply by the blood of Jesus Christ that we come. Acceptable sacrifice brings Him nothing of our own. We only bring back to Him what He has given us. A great example of this before we close, is Luke chapter 18. We've heard this parable. The parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And they both go to the temple to pray. They're both going to worship. The tax collector comes with nothing of his own. He brings nothing of his own. In fact, he feels so worthless that he won't even stand in the middle of the temple. He stands far off to the side. The Pharisee comes to worship. And what does the Pharisee say? God, I have done this, and I have done this. I tithed, and I fasted. Are tithing, was tithing wrong? No. Was he supposed to? Yes. Was fasting wrong? No. He was supposed to fast. He was doing good things, right? So he's coming to worship. But he didn't really bring anything to God other than his own deeds. God, look what I have done. Because He didn't say, Lord, by Your grace, I've been able to give to the poor. By Your grace, I'm able to fast. He said, Lord, I have done this and I have done that. And especially, Lord, I'm not that. I'm not that man. He had lifted Himself up in the presence of God to make Himself himself look holy. But what was the tax collector's prayer? A simple beating of his breast, saying, Have mercy on me, a sinner. He did not bring a single work of his own because he had nothing to bring to God. He didn't bring his good deeds. He didn't bring his anything. He brought simply a broken and a contrite heart. He came to worship. The Pharisee came to worship, but God only accepted one. He says the tax collector went home justified. He had been made right with God. God accepted his worship because he had the same worship that Abel had. He came to God in faith to worship God. Not to worship his own deeds. Not to worship what he had done. Not to make himself feel better. None of that. He simply brought back to God what God had given him. God accepts what He inspires. This is the lesson of this this story, especially with Leviticus. I mean, it's a somber story. Two men died worshiping God. But the point is we must bring back to God what He has given us to bring to Him. Our independent offerings without Jesus are not going to be accepted. Our offerings that are inflamed through ourselves are an affront to God. To come to before Him in a way of our, our own making, our own devising, through our own wisdom, that's to come to God in a self-confident spirit, believing that I am good enough. I can do this. Instead of coming with a humility-inspired spirit, coming before God, realizing that I'm nothing before God. I am nothing before Him. When we come before God to worship, God knows our hearts. 
I don't know your heart. I don't know what's counterfeit, and I don't know what's genuine. But God does. And sometimes I have to do a reality check on myself. God, am I bringing you fake currency? Am I bringing you something that I just made up and acting like I can worship you and you accept my worship? Or God, am I coming before you with a broken and a contrite heart? A heart whose only goal is to lift you high and bring myself low because God will accept that worship. So my encouragement to you today is not to beat you up and bring you down with a depressing sounding sermon. It's to make us all have a reality check. Have I tried to make up my own way to worship God? Am I bringing something that I think is better than what God has approved? Am I bringing something that I can hide from the world and everybody else in this congregation that may appear good, that on the surface seems okay, but as my heart, full of love, the same type of love that God had for me, is it flowing out towards His people? Am I coming before Him broken over my sins and willing to accept all of His people in the same way that He has willingly and lovingly brought me into His home? How am I worshiping? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You watch over our hearts when we come before You. Lord, we would examine ourselves as we are told to do, that we often tell ourselves before the communion supper, that we would examine ourselves to see where our heart truly is with you. That we would not be a superficial Christian who shows the world some good deeds, but our heart is still our own. Lord, may our heart be wholly yours, so that when we come to worship, Lord, we come to simply bring you praise and honor to lift you up. Not that we be seen, but Lord, that you be glorified and magnified. Lord, I pray that we could identify the own counterfeit worship we have in our own lives and in our own hearts so that we could worship you with purity, with holiness, in the way that you have called us to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.